In a recent mobile app testing survey, 84% of QA organizations said they need to test on real devices in order to be successful. Cambryonics builds managed USB hubs to help you test easier. Discover how managed USB hubs can accelerate delivery of your apps. Learn more at cambryonics.com. In 2017, Red Hat, IBM, Tommy Tri, and Oracle stood on stage together and announced that they were working together to move all of Java Enterprise Edition, Java EE 8, to an independent foundation. As work progressed, the Eclipse Foundation was chosen. Recently, there have been some road bumps on this journey. These include things like restriction of the Java X namespace for Jakarta EE moving forward. Hello, and welcome to the InfoQ podcast. My name is Wes Rice, and I'm your host. I chair a set of software conferences called QCon. The next one is at QCon New York, June 24th to 26th. Hope you can join us. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Mike Malinkovich. Mike is the first and current executive director of the Eclipse Foundation. He currently sits on the executive committee of the JCP. In 2011, he was appointed to the board of the OpenJDK for a year and worked as a contributor to develop the OpenJDK governance model. In 2012, Malinkovich was elected to the board of the Open Source Initiative, where he served for six years. Today on the podcast, we're going to be discussing the move from Java EE to Jakarta EE and the challenges that we currently face and the road ahead. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So before we jump into kind of the recent news, let's kind of recap. So 2017, I mentioned, you know, Red Hat, IBM, Tommy Tried Oracle all stood on stage and said, we're working towards moving to this innovative community. What's happened since then? Well, there's two parts to the story, right? There's what happened before they made the announcement on stage in 2017 that motivated them for bringing the stuff over and then what's happened since. And I think part of the reason why the move happened in the first place is simply that Java EE, unlike Java SE, has always been a multi-vendor ecosystem. So like WebSphere and JBoss are just as big a name as WebLogic, for example. So there's always been multiple implementations and it's been a pretty vibrant ecosystem in terms of products making pretty big bucks in this space. And I think what happened to a certain degree is Oracle realized that with the move to cloud and all of the other things that they had on their plate as a corporation, that inviting their partners to participate in the governance and the future evolution of the specs, rather than trying to continue to lead it all themselves, was a better path forward, both for their partners and for them. And since the move was announced, first of all, a lot of really good things have happened. All of Glassfish is now Eclipse Glassfish. So we moved millions and millions of lines of code over for that. I think another piece of very big news is that Oracle, for the first time in its history, open sourced the Java EE TCK. I mean, so Glassfish has been open source for quite a while, but the TCKs were never open source up until late last year when they became available at Eclipse. And that's actually a huge step. I mean, that's one of those you can't go back kind of steps in terms of making that available. But a lot of good engineering work has happened to move all of these technologies over to the Eclipse Foundation and establish these projects. But where we've, and this is the reason for the chat, is that, you know, in parallel with doing that, there's been... It wasn't nonstop, but over about a year, negotiations with the Eclipse Foundation and Oracle about the legal issues of moving the specifications, and which had been developed by Sun and then Oracle under the JCP, moving all of those under the control of the Eclipse Foundation. Now, one of the aspects of trademark law is that when you license a trademark, it's completely normal that you have quality requirements that go with that trademark license. So, if you know if if you're going to license Kleenex, 
right? You're going to say, okay, it's, if you're going to call this Kleenex, it's got to be this good, whatever that, you know, this thick, that many plies, all this kind of stuff. And when we got into the details of what that would mean for Java EE, they got very complicated. And basically we got into a corner where we just couldn't come up with an agreement that worked for them and for us. So then we tried plant, and this is now what was announced a little while ago, somewhat tongue-in-cheek internally called Plan B, which is we don't get a license to the trademarks. We just get a copyright license to the specs so that we can move those forward. And that's where we are today. Let's back up just for a second. So prior to that kind of bringing all the vendors together, there was also a good 18 months or so where there wasn't much movement, right? Yes. And I think one of those things where there was no visible movement, but there was a lot of discussions happening internally at Oracle about, okay, this isn't working. What are we going to do? And then there was also getting those companies up on stage at Java One in 2017. There was, yeah, that was, there was months of backroom are we really going to do this and what does it mean kind of discussions that happened before then. All right. So right now you're getting a license to the specs for you to do your own implementation. Is that right? Well, it's not about implementations. It's about the specs itself. So we're getting a license to Oracle stuff. We actually have to go out and ask for IBM and Red Hat and SAP and Pivotal and all these other companies that have contributed over the years to license their copyrights as well including quite a few individuals, but it's a license to evolve the text of those specifications over time. So the goal is, is, you know, servlet needs to live and breathe. So we need a license in order to be able to do that. And when you say license, what kind of licensing will that mean? It's a copyright license. So, you know, it says things like the right to copy, distribute, sub-license, create derivative works, all those kinds of texts that you read in your favorite open source license appears in this document. I guess it's worth pointing out just to remind some folks that when we're talking Java E, we're talking about servlet, we're talking about Java server faces, we're talking about EL, we're talking about JAX-RS, the restful stuff, the XML binding, context, dependency injection, Java persistence API, JMS, anything else that I missed there? Probably not. I think you hit the high points. But one of the key points that is important for everybody to understand is it's easy to say things like, oh, yeah, I don't use Java EE anymore. You know, Java EE is dead, yada, yada, yada. Well, you know, there's lots of people who would not develop a new application on top of a on-premise monolithic app server. That's true. However, these specifications, you know, especially things like Servlet and JAXRS and so on, are fundamental to tons and tons of cloud infrastructure and cloud applications. So it's trite to say Java EE is dead. Actually, there was a guy one time I was having dinner with and he said, Java EE is dead, except for all of the APIs. At the time, I thought there was like an objectionable statement, but it's absolutely true, except for the fact that there is going to be Java EE applications that are going to be running and supporting you know, mission critical applications for the next 20 years. So it might not be your first choice for a new application, but my goodness, if you like getting paid or if you like your bank not losing your money, then you're probably using Java E applications every day. Or at least an API or aspect of it. The best way that I always described it is Java E, Jakarta E is that collection of specifications. It's all those things together that makes it Java E or Jakarta E. Individual servlet specification, it's just a web server running Java. So if you want to use a servlet, that's going to be part of the Java E or Jakarta E spec. 
And our real goal here is about taking these specs, adding additional specs. But the whole point of you know why we're working so hard to make all this happen is Java is a great language and platform. There's millions of developers that know Java. There are thousands of corporations that have deep Java skills in their organizations, right? We want to leverage those people's skills and that institutional knowledge in those corporations and those enterprises to help them create the right platform for the next generation of applications being written in Java. So this is about the future of Java, not just about maintaining the past. So let's talk a little bit more about this quality requirement for licensing the Java X namespace, because to me, it just seems really extraordinary that you couldn't use it. What was being asked that couldn't quite be met? Fundamentally, I think the issue is that Oracle considers the Java X namespace to be a trademark of Oracle. What they wanted, and remember I was mentioning earlier about the quality requirements. So the quality requirements that they wanted us to sign up to in order to evolve the Java X namespace under a process controlled by the Eclipse Foundation, they wanted elements of control over that process that we were not willing to agree to. So Eclipse Foundation is a not-for-profit. We are a 501c6, so we have legal requirements to be vendor neutral. We have legal requirements to act in the best interest of the entire industry, and particularly not any one vendor or any one technology platform. And there are some things that, despite good intentions on both sides, we just could not come to an agreement on. So the actual ramifications is just that don't use that namespace and we're okay, or what's going to actually mean? Well, it's kind of an interesting situation we're in. We can actually use the namespace. We just can't change it. And in addition, there are some requirements. For as long as we're using the Java X namespace, there are conditions that it can only use a certified Java SE runtime. And this may be a good point to segue into kind of how we see this rolling out in the future. So the first thing that we need to do is create a Jakarta branded specification that replaces Java EE8. So Jakarta EE8 is going to be exactly the same as Java EE8. Including Java X namespace. Including the Java X namespace. So the first release of the specifications that come from the Jakarta EE process are going to be exactly the same as Java EE. All right, so if you're a developer and you're sitting there listening to this, it's like, why bother, right? Like if you're doing the same thing, why would you waste your time doing exactly the same thing? And the answer is because the IP rules are completely different under Jakarta than they are under Java. So for example, under the Java EE process, if you want to put the coffee cup on your product, you have to sign a license with Oracle. Right. And typically those Java EE coffee cup licenses have been, I've never signed one of these checks, so I don't know, but I've heard that they're in the millions of dollars per year in terms of license royalties to put the coffee cup on, say, WebSphere or JBoss or whatever. And under the Jakarta case, the license requirement is you have to be a member of the Jakarta EE working group. That's it. Right. So the TCK license and the specification license are completely different and far more liberal than the licenses that were provided under the JCP. It's technically exactly the same, but from a legal and business perspective, there are huge advantages for Jakarta EE8 to exist for the sake of the platform and the ecosystem. And what I predict will happen is that that Jakarta EE8 platform is going to be used by many companies for many, many years. It's going to be a very sort of long-term support. Just like we're seeing right now in the Java SE world, where 
many companies are sticking with Java SE8 because that was the one before the module system got put in. And so it's what they know, it's the Java they know. And, and so people are planning on keeping applications running on Java SE8 for a great many years. I certainly think it's possible that the same will happen with Jakarta E8. One of the good things though about this is that all of the companies involved are economically motivated to switch to this new brand the day it's available. So I think you're going to see very rapid switch of the whole ecosystem over to the Jakarta EE branding. Technically the same minus the licensing check that you have to write for the application server. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we just talked about one of the problems. Now you kind of indicated that with the quality standards, you had to use kind of a certified JVM to be able to run to it. That was the other problem. I understood it as a separate issue, but it's both. It is both. Okay. So just to kind of say what it is though, the other major problem that I understood is that Oracle wanted that the Eclipse IE that's distributed by the Eclipse Foundation be bundled with a Java runtime certified by Oracle or its licensees and not by uncertified runtimes, which is totally from what I understand about the Eclipse Foundation, everything I know about it, totally opposite to kind of the mission and goal of Eclipse. Yeah. So we are a vendor neutral open source foundation. So our goal is that the only restrictions that we want to apply to our projects are those that arise from OSI approved open source licenses, right? So, you know, obviously the GPL is a different set of constraints than the BSD. And strictly speaking, this topic is unrelated to Jakarta because we're talking about the Eclipse IDE here, but it was all in the same board meeting. So it appeared in the same set of minutes. But Oracle wanted to insist that if we ship a runtime, a Java runtime from Eclipse, that it had to be either from Oracle or one of Oracle's licensees. And obviously we had problems with that and couldn't agree to it. Let's talk about that a bit more. I don't understand why we're talking about the Eclipse IDE in the context of Jakarta EE. Why were they even connected at all? They weren't. It just so happened that these two topics both appeared in the same board meeting. So I think they got conflated in some people's minds, but they are actually distinct topics. And if you read the meeting minutes, they're separate conversations. So I'm confused. Why was Oracle even in a position to say we want Eclipse to be running with Oracle JDK rather than an open JDK? Okay. The first thing to understand is, you know, the Eclipse IDE has been around now for 18 years. I was going to say one or two years. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a long time. (laughs) And it's never shipped with a runtime. Never. So basically what happened is an idea for making things easier for our users and adopters, the project said, hey, we would like to start shipping a Java runtime. And initially they suggested that they would want to ship a runtime that was based on Eclipse OpenJ9, which is the open source project at Eclipse that builds a Java virtual machine that going through the IBM channel, it's a fully certified Java SDK, but it's not certified if you just download and use it from Eclipse. And so that dilemma is what caught Oracle's attention. And they were like, well, if you're going to pretend that it's Java, then it has to be Java. And if it has to be Java, it has to be certified. And if, you know, they're not willing to agree to anything other than that, that's kind of what started the conversation. Yeah. Anyway, so that's probably enough on that topic. It's not preventing us from doing anything that we haven't been doing for many, many years. It is preventing us from doing something that we think would make the lives of our Eclipse IDE users easier. And in particular, we have a lot of IDE users that use Eclipse for C++ or use Eclipse for PHP. And those folks don't necessarily have a JRE previously installed on their laptop, 
right? So that's where in particular, those kinds of users are where we were running into issues. Okay, so let's talk about kind of the road ahead. So Jakarta EE8, when are we going to see it and what can we expect? So Jakarta EE8 is going to be exactly the same as Java EE8. And so from a binary compatibility, API, no change, you should be able, and still using the Java X namespace, so you'll be able to take your existing applications and move them over really quickly. And we, as I said earlier, we expect all of the vendors to jump on the Jakarta EE branding right away. And so that's the first release. The timetable for the ending that out is before Oracle Code 1, which is what, third week of September. So we definitely need to get that out so that we don't go to Oracle Code without having that release in the bag. Now, just so folks know, there's a surprising amount of work that has to happen in order to enable us to ship exactly the same specs. We actually have to run each one of the specs through the new Jakarta EE spec process. So every one of those, we have to create those projects. We have to get the scope statements right. We have to actually get the documents. We have to get all the copyright holders to allow us to revise those documents and push them into the projects, You know, actually get the documents into the repositories run it through an approval process. And so there's actual stuff that needs to happen in order to get this done. So let's talk about that. What is the Jakarta EE spec process now? So as part of this journey, we have created a spec process for the Eclipse Foundation from scratch. So if you go back a year and a half ago, the Eclipse Foundation did not do specs. And now we do. So we created a spec process that is basically an overlay on top of our development process. The Eclipse Foundation is similar to the Apache Software Foundation in that we actually have a particular governance model for how our projects operate. So they have a life cycle, they go through incubation, there's a set of meritocracy rules about how committers are added and all that kind of stuff. So we have an Eclipse way that's somewhat similar to the Apache way. And so the idea when we created this spec process was to create a well-grounded, very professional specification process that is an overlay on top of how we run open source projects. So the idea is basically, we know how to run open source projects, we do a good job with those. What are the additional things that we need to add in order to create specifications? And one of the things that most developers might not realize is that spec processes are significantly different than open source processes. So for example, we all know that if you contribute to an open source project, you're making the contributions under the license that's running that open source project. And in most modern open source licenses have a royalty-free patent grant in them. And that patent grant reads on the contributions that was made by a certain company into the code base. The patent grants that happen in specifications are far broader in the sense that our entire patent portfolio whether it reads on the contributions that we made to the spec or not, our entire patent portfolio is licensed to all independent implementations of the final specification, right? So that's a much bigger and broader patent license than what you typically get in open source licenses. And as a result, companies that join spec processes want to see a little bit more formality because they're contributing their potentially great swaths of their patent portfolio to the specification. And I'm as guilty of this as the next person. And it's like, that's why we think of spec processes sometimes as being slow and cumbersome. And it's because they're designed to be somewhat slow and cumbersome. To the people who live in this world, that's a feature, not a bug. And that's the kind of thing that we did in the spec processes. When do those licenses vest? 
How does somebody join a spec project? Because there's extra formality around that. How do we get companies to sign up agreements so that we know that this company is participating and they know that they're participating and that their patents might be licensed by virtue of their activities in the projects? So it's basically building this toolkit of formality on top of our development process. But that said, the spec projects are ultimately run as close to an Eclipse Foundation open source project as we possibly can. And compared to the JCP, which is the predecessor, for example, it's going to be a much more open and interactive and agile process than what was happening at the JCP. So what does it mean going forward? Is it going to continue to look like the Java E release process with identifying specs and having it? Or is there going to be a release train like Java SE is doing? What's it going to look like going forward beyond Jakarta EE8? So there's a medium-term topic and a longer topic. So the medium-term topic is, okay, what do we do for the first release after we get Jakarta E8 done? So what's the content for Jakarta E9? And that is a topic of vigorous debate on the platform mailing list right now because there are, generally speaking, sort of two schools of thought in terms of how do we move forward. And one school is, it's called the Big Bang, which is let's just take every single Java X namespace thing and switch it to Jakarta all at once. Then there's some technical things that become possible in terms of building class loaders that will automatically map Java X namespace to Jakarta namespace. So you can get binary compatibility for applications. So you could move those applications forward more easily. The incremental approach is, okay, as we decide that we want to change a spec, let's change that package to the Jakarta namespace, but incrementally change things. So we haven't even decided the content of that next release at that level of granularity, never mind talking about new specs or anything like that. And we purposefully and consciously and, and explicitly said that we're going to let this debate go until, I can't remember the exact date, but sometime in early or middle June, and then we're going to make a decision and, and go forward. And until we make that sort of very fundamental decision, we don't have a date for EE9. Because, for example, let's say we do a release called EE9, and the only thing we do is this mechanical translation of the namespace. Well, we could probably crank that out in eight weeks. If we start adding a bunch of new specs, or if we do an incremental approach, then that would take longer. Looking further down the line, you know, once we get the release out the door, what are we going to do about a sort of a standard release cadence? Are we going to adopt a release train model? These are questions that we probably aren't going to answer until first half of 2020. So I guess the synopsis in the short term is to get the Jakarta EE8 out to match Java EE8 exactly so that you can switch the licensing arrangements. In the intermediate term, it's going to be to get the namespaces over, whether that's partially or big bang, and ensuring backwards compatibility with class loaders to be able to load Java X namespace versus a Jakarta namespace. That's going to be really one of the focuses, if not the only focus of EE9. And then going beyond that is when we can expect to see the EE spec continue to evolve and then possibly look at different release cycles, possibly, or whatever else may be the case. Right. And then the one thing that we haven't actually talked about yet that's important to keep in mind is that in parallel with all of these Jakarta EE activities, MicroProfile continues to move quickly. They have a release cadence of three spec releases a year. They just did, I want to say, MicroProfile 3.0, I think. And so they are going to continue to move their specs forward quickly. And that's definitely an area where innovation continues to happen while we're sorting out all of these Jakarta topics. 
So actually, that's a question that I want to bring up. There's a lot of questions that I hear around MicroProfile with Java E. What are the difference? What are the distinctions? Can you talk about that for a second? Think of MicroProfile as a distinct overlay on top of a few pieces of Java EE. So MicroProfile has a whole set of specifications. I think there's 16 in there right now. And they're related specifically to the kinds of APIs and technologies you need to deliver microservice-based applications written in Java. So things like health check, config, and on and on and on in terms of the specs. It uses a couple of specs from Java EE. So it uses CDI, it uses JAXRS, and a few that I'm forgetting. I think there's either four or five in total. So they plucked a couple of specs from Java EE, added a bunch of other stuff that's on top that's useful for microservices, and that's what MicroProfile is. So it's actually quite distinct from Java EE. With bringing Jakarta EE in to the Eclipse Foundation, what's the long-term goal for the Eclipse Foundation? What's your purpose? So the first thing to understand is uh, the Eclipse Foundation itself, we're not a company. We don't have a particular agenda here. What we're good at is getting companies, often direct competitors, to collaborate on building technology platforms. And so... We have IBM, Oracle, Red Hat, Fujitsu, Tommy Tribe, Payera, all of the existing incumbents in the Java EE space involved in this. And our goal with both Jakarta EE and MicroProfile, so the combination of those two, is to help those companies define a multi-vendor platform for cloud-native Java. So as I said earlier, there's you know millions of developers out there that know this technology. There's thousands of companies that have the deep institutional memory and knowledge and skills on building Java applications, and they want to modernize their infrastructure and move it forward into the cloud. And we feel that the technologies that are being developed at the Eclipse Foundation are going to define the future for Java development in the cloud. And so really strongly encourage developers to learn more about these specs and the projects at Eclipse that are implementing them and to engage and participate because ultimately the more developers we have participating, the better the end result is going to be for everybody involved. Well, Mike, thanks for taking the time to join us on the InfoQ podcast. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Wondering what's the current state of the DevOps and cloud computing space? Where are Kubernetes, chaos engineering, and AI ops in terms of adoption? Read the InfoQ Trends reports to find out about this and much more in less than 11 minutes. Check it out at infoq.link forward slash DevOps dash trends dash 2019. We'll include the link in the podcast description as well.